This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. Um, Today I'm going to bring to you a bit of a unique podcast. I actually want to share with you an excerpt from a talk that Dr. Matt Lapine did in a recent crash course that we had here at Cornerstone on the image of God and what that means for mercy, compassion, and justice. And in this clip, um, Matt's going to lay out for us kind of a theological framework for why people made in God's image matter and what we would expect to see happening in terms of the pursuit of mercy, compassion, and justice for image bearers. In particular, this crash course was recorded around the weekend of MLK Day and kind of was part of what we were doing to celebrate uh, just honoring Dr. King's legacy, but also to contemplate what it means for us now. This is about a 20-minute clip of a larger, almost two-hour session in that crash course that if you want to get more on that, you can just go to cornerstonelife.com. That's like our main website for Cornerstone Church. And then you go slash equipping And that will take you to various options that we have available to you, the equipped resources we put on our podcast, but also a library of these crash courses and equip weekends that we have, of which we did this recent one on the image of God that you can get to there. So again, that's cornerstonelife.com slash equipping. So I'd love for you to listen to the full image of God recording, but for now, let's listen to this and be taught and learn a little about what it looks like for us to honor people made in God's image. So there's two parts to tonight. The first part is the image of God and justice. So my aim here is to give you the relational consequences of the fall. There's relational distance from God and from each other. I'm going to pick up on the phrase that I just read in the book of James chapter 2, this phrase, stand over there. This is what James tells us not to say to the poor in James chapter 2. I think this phrase expresses relational distance. It's a token for a sort of relational distance that we can place between ourselves or others. Or as Howard Thurman says, contact without fellowship. So God was actually the first person to say, stand over there to humanity when we rebelled. He exiled us from the garden because of our disobedience. So the relationship needed reconciliation. We needed to be brought back in. So relational distance is a part of life after the fall. We have distance from God. We have distance from other, but that's not God's final word for us. God has been calling humanity to himself all throughout the pages of scripture. It is this restoration that Jesus offers to us when he says, not stand over there, but come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the fall also means that human beings have been saying, stand over there to each other since the beginning. I want to show you that God's people are not to do this and that care is what justice demands of us. My second task, then the second part of this, is titled Contact with Fellowship. And the point of this is to invite us all to evaluate our actions and our habits. Do my actions communicate, come to me, the come to me that Jesus offers? Does my church body effectively communicate, come to us, all you who labor and are heavy laden? 
So I'm making a serious request for your attention. Please try and block out the noise. I cannot silence it, but I can ask you to focus your attention on how to have contact with fellowship, with suffering and dishonored brothers and sisters. So let me jump right into part one. Genesis 2. You can, you can flip with me in your Bibles. I would be encouraged to hear pages turning as I'm talking. Um, it's one of the real problems with your uh, smartphone, and I can't hear what you're doing. Genesis 2 paints a picture of creation, of creation as it is in its original goodness. It's what the Hebrew Bible uh, calls shalom. We translate the word shalom, peace, but it really, a better term might be harmony. It represents the essence of the good life, close relationships with God, close relationships with others, and close relationships with the land where we enjoy the fruits of the land. When God created, he set the man and the woman in the garden to cultivate that beautiful place. Genesis 2 tells that story. They were to bring forth beautiful fruit, fruit from their labor in the land, but also fruit of children for their joy. They lived with God in a beautiful intimacy and enjoyed his blessing. So when the serpent tempted them with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he tempted them with a breach of trust. They were invited to doubt the goodness of God, to betray the intimate dependence that they enjoyed. And Adam and Eve chose independence. They chose rebellion from their creator and provider. They chose to go it alone. They chose relational distance. So God exiled them from the garden, the place of intimacy. God's stand over there was not merely a judgment. It was that. But it also was a confirmation of their choice. All of humanity was created to represent and reflect God in beautiful dependence on him. Our purpose for existing is the beautiful relationship of dependence with our creator. We are equally dependent and equally image bearers, all of us. We are created for this purpose. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Three parallel lines that build, meaning that both man and women are included in the term man. Humanity, together we image God in our unity, in our equality, and in our difference. Men and women together image uh, the, the unity and difference in God, the oneness and threeness. God exists in one being, in three persons, unity in diversity. So the rupture of relationship with God also had an impact on the relationship between men and women. So notice in Genesis 3.16, the text says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The relationship is now characterized by conflict. So not only is the vertical relationship ruptured, but the horizontal relationship between ourselves and others is ruptured. The history of the relationships between men and women are both beautiful and broken. We know that. Men and women have worked together harmoniously to build families, to build societies, to build institutions, And we've also used our relational power to dominate and manipulate each other. There's a history of saying to one another, stand over there. As we continue in the biblical story, the pervasive violence before the flood is a part of this pattern of stand over there. Violence is something done to someone near to you physically, but far from you relationally. So after the flood, then, we have the Tower of Babel. 
The story of Babylon Genesis is a false start at reconciliation. All the people come together, and they come together to make a name for themselves. Humanity tried to build a bridge to the heavens to enact their own reconciliation with God. They did not receive it. In Genesis 9, God had again blessed them and he'd said, be be fruitful and multiply. That's a repetition of the blessing in Genesis chapter 1. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. This is the problem eating granola before. And there's always something waiting for me. Spread out of the earth and multiply on it, but humanity refused. That's what the Tower of Babel represents. They're coming together for power and not for mutual dependence, nor for dependence on God. They want to build their own way. So what did God do? He confused their languages, causing them to divide and to spread out over the earth like he told them to. But notice, this is a further deepening of God's stand over there to humanity. God deepened the difference and diversity in humankind through this separation. But as Romans 8 said, God stand over there, sometimes or it's always done in hope. When God says stand over there, he always does it in hope. Exile is imposed to provoke longing for restoration and reunion. And diversity may display the splendor of equal humanity in more vivid colors. But how would God say, come to me? What would, how, when would humanity again be brought together in unity and blessing? So Genesis 12 is the next text that we go to. The Abrahamic promise gives us hope. In Genesis 12, four, uh, one through four, it says, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, forsake all the, the memories, all the past that you have to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Not like Babel, where they, were, they themselves were trying to make a name for themselves. God will do it. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So remember, we had creation. We had the curse on all of humanity. We had exile and now God is reversing it with blessing. Genesis 17, seven through eight continues. It is to be a permanent covenant to be, uh, to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you're residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So this is God's come to me. He promises to dwell with them and be their God and give them a place to be with him. He also promises to bring all peoples together under this blessing. God's come to me will extend to the ends of the earth. So I can't cover the whole history of the Old Testament here. But most of us know the story. Abraham's descendants are brought, into the, uh, are brought into the land of promise, but only after they've been segregated and oppressed in Egypt for 400 years. The most poignant sort of stand over there moment of Egypt's oppression is the exposure of infant babies to the Nile River. It's likely that the Hebrew mothers were instructed to throw their children into the Nile River as an ancient exposure practice where you leave a child to see what the gods will do, to see if the Nile God might come and save them by carrying the babies down the river to Egyptian families so that they would be culturally assimilated, or to see if the Nile God might take the lives of the little boys, choking out the hopes and futures of this little nation. 
So when Israel comes into the land of promise, God says to them, you must not exploit the resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. So the land of Israel was to be different. It was to be a land of justice where God was king. And justice meant that no one was to be treated as if they were not an image bearer. Christopher Wright highlights how God's laws maintained financial equity in the land. So God was clear that he himself owned the land and he lent it to them by tribe, by clan, by family as a permanent inheritance, but it was his. There were laws designed for retaining hereditary ownership, such as jubilee or the right of redemption, Leverett marriage was designed to keep family lines going after an heir would die. Israel was not allowed to charge interest. You can see Exodus 22:25, Leviticus 25:36, Deuteronomy 23:19 and 20. All of these provisions were to promote equity and justice in the land. And justice meant relational accountability to their fellow countrymen, to their brothers and sisters, their fellow image bearers. Care is what justice demanded. It diminished all of them if any of them were degraded. Care is what justice demanded of them. So, fast forward. The prophet Jeremiah is famous for predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon and people were carried away. This exile was the second major stand over there moment in the Old Testament. But why did, he, why did God do this? Why did he carry them away? Jeremiah brings two major charges in the book of, of Jeremiah. The first is idolatry, corruption of worship. He compares the worship of other gods to unfaithfulness in marriage. The second is injustice. Listen to a few passages. I've got on your your, uh, um, table, thank you, that round thing. Um, I've got some QR codes, and one of them is a ton of passages about justice in the Old Testament. And so if you want to scan that, you can, but I'm going to read just a couple of them here, a selection. Jeremiah 5.1 says, Roam through the streets of Jerusalem. Investigate, search in her squares. If you find one person, any, who acts justly, who pursues faithfulness, then I will forgive her. In verse 24 of the same chapter, it says, they have not said to themselves, let's fear the Lord our God, who gives seasonal rains, both autumn and spring, who guarantees us fixed weeks of the harvest. Your guilty acts have diverted you from these things. You've done bad things and so you're not trusting God. Your sins have withheld my bounty from you. For wicked men live among my people. Who are these wicked men? They watch like hunters lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds so their houses are full of deceit. And what do they look like? They've grown powerful and rich. They have become fat and sleek. They have excelled in evil matters. They have not taken up the case such as the case of the fatherless, so that they might prosper. They have not defended the rights of the needy. Should I not punish them for these things? This is the Lord's declaration. Should I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Israel was a nation that did not care for its needy. Jeremiah 7.3. 
This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Don't trust in deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourself. I'll allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. So I want you to notice, not not just here, but all through that document I gave you, biblical justice is positive. It's not negative. It's not the absence of hostility. It's the presence of the fellowship with the poor. They ought to have taken up the cause of the poor. That is where the heart of God is. And it's fitting for a fellow image bearer. Care is what justice demanded of them. So I'm going to just listen to, list two more texts from Isaiah here, okay? Isaiah 116, wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 10.1, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression, turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may take the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? To forsake the poor and the powerless in their alienation is to forsake fellowship. When care is what justice demanded of them, they chose contact without fellowship. Physical proximity, relational distance. Israel said, stand over there to the poor. And so God said to them, Stand over there in Babylon. You will be exiled to Babylon because of your lack of faithful love. The question is, where will justice come from? How will it flow like water, like an unfailing stream? How can we be brought back to Eden to live with God in harmony, to live with each other in beautiful unity in diversity? We know the answer to that question, right? We all do. The answer to the question is the person of Jesus Christ. He does not say, stand over there. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy because he bears the penalty for our sins. He redeems us, making forgiveness and reconciliation possible with the Father. Romans 5 says he gives us peace with God. He restores the harmony and the shalom of that relationship. But if Jesus offers us, come to me, what does that mean for our relationships with one another? When Jesus gives to his spirit to his disciples in the book of Acts, something remarkable happens. So Acts Acts 2 tells us of the reversal of Babel at Pentecost. The reversal of Babel. What did God do at Babel? He confused the languages and dispersed people, right? Instead of the languages being confused, creating disunity as at Babel, here each understands the speech of the disciples in their own language. 
No longer is everyone confused, now everyone can understand. And to what end? Uh, uh, They are brought together by the message of the gospel through the coming together of that language. So, what happens next? Do you know what happens next in the chapter? Can you think ahead? What happens at the end of the chapter? What sort of behavior follows from this sort of reception of the gospel? So given what we know of Israel's failure, what were the two things, right? Idolatry and injustice. We'd expect to find a sort of renewal of these secondary relationships, this justice through care, right? So let's look down in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, adding, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We see exactly what we expected to see. A people committed in relationship to, uh, to each other, to each other's well-being, genuinely loving and upholding justice by care to those who had needs. So we need God's come to me. And we need to respond with a joyful come to us. We need to say, come to us, to our afflicted and dishonored brothers and sisters. We need contact with fellowship, with faithful love.